if we can find a way to put that magic back in the music making through technology and audio over internet protocol is the obvious uh, is the obvious path thank you for joining us and welcome to the focus right pro podcast this is a mostly bi-monthly show where we dive into the cutting edge technology behind professional audio products on the show today, Ted and I are once again joined by Frank Wells for the finale of our interview with this pro audio legend. We're going to discuss shifting from a technical studio career to an editorial career, joining and engaging with the Audio Engineering Society, the evolution of the Audio Engineering Society, supporting and shaping the future of the audio industry, and we'll talk a little bit about a $3 million recording studio being bulldozed to build condos. Yeah, so after Masterphonics, then what what was next for you? I worked in the shop, obviously, at Masterphonics, and we would have, again, a Glenn buying gear, uh, being being one of those leading-edge kind of guys, there was a Apogee box called the UV-1000 that had their UV-22 dither algorithm in it, and it did a lot of little tricks for mastering guys, like you could flip channels or you could invert polarity, if absolute polarity was out, and do some do some functional things, but you could also use it as a little bit of an input switcher. So there were four of them in the United States and Glenn had bought three of them, uh, one for our mix room and then one for each of the two mastering, main mastering suites at Masterphonics. And John Gatsky, who was editor of Pro Audio Review at the time, calls up Glenn and says, hey, we're trying to get one of these for review, but they don't have any more because you guys bought them all. Um <laughs> How would you like to write us a review? And he said, I don't have time for that. See if Frank wants to do that. So he, they uh, sent him back go. to me, and I, I wrote a review. And that was the second issue of Pro Audio Review. And they were six months, six times a year at the time, and then later became mm -hmm. annual. But I had something in every issue after that. And I went to Glenn and said, well, they want us to keep doing this. If you want, I'll, um, I'll, I'll keep doing it. I'm doing it on company time. I'll split the money with you. He said, cool. Oh, that's so funny. we did that. Wow. So I did, mostly I would do bench tests and evaluative stuff. Um, some things I would review myself, but I, I really didn't want to be the guy to try to review a mic pre because we had these amazing engineers walking through all the time. So unless I could go get one of them to try it out on a session or, or dump it. But again, if you've got triple scale musicians in there, you don't get, a, you don't get real experimental on, uh, on yeah. sounds when, uh, when you're in the middle of those kind of sessions and such. So I would do the bench test, but um, I had a, I had one particular engineer that I, that, that I think he played a game with me called, do I like this? And he would bring me in a mic free that he was thinking about buying. And he would say, do I like this? And then he'd go work in the mix room for a while. And I'd sit back there and run numbers and plots and curves and such. And I got fairly good at saying, you're going to like this on guitar because it's a transformer bump that does this and it does that. And it rolls this off and there's kind of a warm peak in there. And there's a lot of second harmonic distortion and that kind of stuff. If you wouldn't like it on this or you would like it on that and got fairly good at predicting what, uh, what he would, he would like to hear and, and applications and such over time. And those are the kind of things that I applied to, uh, to bench tests and such. Uh, and then I could review digital systems that, that had converters and those kind of things because I could run linearity plots and those kind of things all day long and had a big library of them. Um, after a couple of years of that, Audio Media Magazine, which just recently went dark after a 
It was a great magazine, though. Yeah, at, at its time, it was it was it was great. It was really good. It was a it was a it looked great. The production quality was amazing. The layout guys were were really artists and creating mm-hmm. original art and doing things that made it made it very appealing to hold and feel as well as yeah. uh, as well as building good content. And they wanted to start a U.S. edition, and were looking at Nashville because L.A. was never on the same time clock as the UK at all. Right. And New York was too expensive. Mm-hmm. And someone said, well, the guys at Sadie actually, who were 10 miles down the road from them in the UK said, why don't you look at Nashville? That's where we, we based Sadie USA before mm-hmm. prison bought Sadie and such. And he came over and was touring around. And a friend of mine that worked at Sadie said, you ever thought about editing a magazine? And I said, no. And he said, think about it. Give me a call. And a couple of days later, I was, making a scuzzy cable or something for him and uh, said, so what were you talking about? And he told me that story and introduced me to the publisher and we had dinner. And two weeks later, I was officially the editor of Audio Media USA. And we did the, that was in the mm-hmm. summer, summer of 97. And I guess we did the initial issue later that year at AES, launched at AES that year. Very cool. But before we did that, of course, I went in and we, and drug all the wire for the Ethernet cable and for the telephone system in the, <laughs> in the offices he was building there. And he's kind of wondering, what did I actually hire here? <laughs> and he's in there with a punch box, punching down walls and taking me to Gray Bar and telling me what to buy. That's crazy. <laughs> there was no way he was going to get it done in the two weeks he had available if we didn't do it ourselves. So you had a great review in the uh, the the second edition. You said of ProSound. Well, I had news. I had a review, and they kept asking for more. I don't know about it being great. It's the first thing I wrote, so it was probably not. <laughs> we need to dig that up and and find that. I'm sure that issue wasn't uh, online uh, uh, unless no, they've it's not. unless they've it's not. Okay. I probably still have a copy of it. But then Audio Media started yeah. up the U.S. Yeah. We did two years sure. of that. The publisher was um, the publisher became ill. And, and you launched that, and you launched that publication in the U.S. as the editor. Yes, yes, I was the inaugural okay. editor of, of Audio Media USA, and we did that for a little over two years. And the publisher's wife, after his illness, decided that she needed to cash out and sold the magazine to Imus, who happened to own Pro Audio Review. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Gatsby oh, wow. says, "Hey, we're going to be working together again." But simultaneously with that, the folks at ProSound News were looking for a editor and mm-hmm. talked to me. And it's kind of like, well, I, a magazine, you know, it's not as technical. It's a journalism right. thing. It's a different thing. But they said, I said, why do you want me? I'm not, uh, I'm not a journalist per se. I'm just an audio guy. And they said, well, you know your industry and you can write a complete sentence. We'll teach you the rest, which is exactly <laughs> the same thing that the audio media guys told me two and a half years before that. <laughs> and I was actually the first hire. ProSound News was 20 years old that following year. I was the first hire at ProSound News that actually had had a professional job in the audio industry. Uh, everyone else had, wow. had been had come out of journalism school and, and morphed into it. And uh, sure. I was the first guy there that was a, uh, that actually had a, a real live audio background to some extent. 
that's pretty amazing. And then you, you spent quite a bit of time at uh, ProSound News. Right. And then um, how long have you been involved with the Audio Engineering Society? And when did that, uh, when did when did you start working with them as well and become a member? Okay. I became a member uh, my second year at Masterphonics. Okay. Glenn actually made me a member and said, I'm taking you to the AS convention in New York. I'm going to buy you a membership because I want you to be able to go to the full program. And Very cool. the, the price differential for those who don't know, if, if you're a member, you pay the same price as a non-member pays. However, that would get your membership dues as well. So effectively, the full non-member price of a convention would include a membership and do that. So I became a member of the Audio Engineering Society and went to those shows. And again, that was the that was in those same days, early days of digital. And I tried to make Glenn's investment in me uh, worthwhile. And I sat in on all those sessions on dither and dither <laughs> theory and clock and jitter and how to measure it and really dug into the program as much as to the exhibit hall. But on the exhibit mm-hmm. hall, actually, then that's where you made your contacts and you renewed your contacts with the folks at SSL and Otari and all of those guys, because in those days, you couldn't just go online and find a YouTube video on how to tweak something or whatever. Uh, There was no online at that point. And you you needed to have people on call that you could call up and you could work with and find out if other folks had had a similar problem to what you're having or see if they can help you focus in on a problem quickly and such. So you build up those, those networking. A few years later, Jim Kaiser, who was also a AS member and involved and Tom Clark, who was at Quantigy Ampex at the time in Nashville mm-hmm. and Bill Vorndick, Jim kind of put the coalition together and the four of us came together and tried to get AS Nashville revitalized. It had had, uh, it had kind of fallen into virtual non-existence at the time. And the, the four of us kind of traded the officer hats for a few years and, and said, well, you run for chairman this time and got it going again. And, and now it's a great, great section. This was in the late, late 90s, mid to late 90s. So that's when I became involved in that. Jim later became the VP Central Region USA and Canada. And as after he had done his two terms of that, so four years, he said, why don't you run? And I said, mm-hmm. really? So I ran and I became a VP at that point. And then later, you know, through various various committees and committee chairs and working on committees and stuff, committees that I'm still on and things, I continued within the society in various roles over time, culminating in being the president as far as the uh, as far as that side of things go. Mm-hmm. After 15 years at ProSound News and lots of changes and stuff there, it was, it was time to reinvent myself again. I always said, well, I killed the radio industry. Radio had kind of quit being <laughs> fun about the time that I left. It, was, uh, it, it had been deregulated, and anybody that could sign their name to a restricted radio telephone operator's permit could be the chief engineer of a station, and you didn't even have to be able to fix a toaster to be put in charge of the transmitter and uh, the standards were, wow. were loosening up a lot. And it was, it just wasn't a career path. I could have stayed right where I was and retired from the university years later, but it, uh, it didn't seem like a great path and the recording studio stuff opened up. So moved to that. And then of course we talked about the way that the, uh, the big, the big recording studio industry 
kind of collapsed towards the end of the 90s. I moved over to publishing and then later the internet eviscerated publishing. So, you know, basically I killed three industries and then moved on. So, um, <laughs> it, yeah, so for, go, I was gonna say, go ahead. It was, it was time to move on and I put together a coalition of friends that would bring me uh, pieces of work. So I worked for Blank Canvas Publishing out of the UK with the Long mm-hmm. Worship AVL, a house of worship mm-hmm. technology magazine for the Middle East, Asia, and Africa. So I sat in Middle Tennessee and cranked out articles that I sent to the UK that they sent to Singapore for printing, and it was distributed all over Middle East and Africa. And then um, the other two factors of that were the Audio Engineering Society, Bob Moses, the president at the time, says, I want you to come in and be communications director for me and manage content and language and such and work with him on kind of revamping the way the conventions were organized and such, which we did with the, in the, the last LA convention. And at the same time, Robbie Klein of Klein Media, mm-hmm. Klein Media does uh, public relations for a lot of the big names in the industry and has for decades now. So speaker mm-hmm. manufacturers and microphone manufacturers and such. Um, Focus, Robbie right. brought me in to do a few things. One of those being managing the AES account because he did public relations for the Audio Engineering Society. I would put my AES hat on and say, Robbie, AES needs us to do this. Then I could put my client media hat on and say, do we have to listen to this guy? But- <laughs> yeah, Rob, Robbie's great. He uh, he does the PR for Focusrite Pro, and, and uh, we have a great relationship with him. And uh, and that's really cool that you, you had two hats there, both working for uh, being communications director mm-hmm. and then also the vendor that was providing yeah, it's, it's that's, ongoing. That's really, really... It's, it's it's kind of weird and incestuous, but it works. Yeah, and you're and you're still working with yeah. Robbie, which is one of the one of the pleasures of the trade shows is when I get to see you come around and mm-hmm. and bring around the guests to our booths. And yeah. I think you were when I first met you. I think it was around 2010 or something like that. And I think you were either about to be president mm-hmm. or you were president at the time. Um, yeah, it's about a decade ago. Yeah. How, how is AES and the AES show? So these are probably two separate questions, but uh, what, how has um, the AES as a whole and the shows themselves evolved during that time um, since you were president and, and since? Okay. Let's start with the trade show. That's actually the easiest one. And again, just like publishing, the internet has changed the nature of trade shows, yeah. as we all know. When I would first go to a trade show with a magazine hat on and get to see a new SSL, and that one that was at the trade show was the only one in the country. And there was no literature available. And they unveiled it at the show. And you would sit down and get a 45-minute tour of the console by the, the guy who was the uh, technical manager for the project. And Very you would cool. go back and write a six-page article. And that was the only way your readers would, a month and a half later, find out about <laughs> this cool new SSL console or, or whatever. And what all it did and what these new features and stuff were. Now, if you fast forward, you can download the manual as soon as a product's released. Yeah, sure. And then, you know, on the other side, publications are coming through in live streaming. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dealers are coming through in live streaming the events themselves. So it's instant gratification. You're not waiting a month and a half, like you were saying, for for the the very detailed six-page article. You're getting a good um, top-level view. Uh, just immediately. It's instant gratification now with uh, technology that's available. Right. So so from that factor and the, the other side of it being the, the product lines themselves, 
you know, it's API and Harrison are about the only ones making huge, huge consoles anymore. Harrison yeah. primarily for film and then API for recording. There's some pretty good sized broadcast consoles, but the, the days of the million dollar console are all been yeah. gone. Yeah, uh, that's true. And, and the dishwasher or washing machine sized tape machines <laughs> that cost from $160,000 or maybe $60,000 for a great analog machine up to $700,000 for a great digital yeah, track wow. or something you know, with all the tricks and bells and whistles and such. So that pumped a lot of money into the gear market and the fact that all of those were built on relationships and you had to go to a New York to see this console, meet the guy that bought the first one and shake his hand and and get all the tours and such of them, that model doesn't exist anymore and doesn't really need to exist. So that hurt not only the magazines, it's one of the things that was in, in the decline of the magazines as far as size. I mean, you look at Proton News was pretty reliably 128 pages when I started. When I left, it was pretty reliably 60 pages a month. Yeah. So it's it's a very different market and there's less money in there. You don't have SSL taking out an ad, and because they did, Neve has to take out an ad, and so does anyone. Mm -hmm. And API would have to take out an ad, and all of these guys would do it. And then you would have your tape machine ads, and you had that foundation every month sure. of folks. And and a lot of those were vanity ads for the people that bought it. You yeah. buy a you buy a half a million dollar console, they take your picture and put an ad in, and that <laughs> put you on the cover, right? So that yeah. whole thing, and plus the the way the information flows, and that has changed the nature of the trade show. The trade shows are understandably smaller. 9-11 took a, put a pretty good hit. Yeah, big hit. Yeah. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it never completely recovered to the, the previous sizes and such on those. So the nature of the, of the actual show is different. Now, the technical program, we say AES show, but that's a commercial point of view. The non-commercial sure. point of view is it's an AES convention that has an exhibition right. attached to it. Right. There are also 300 plus technical sessions of various types during that convention. And that goes everything from student mentoring and career fairs all the way up to those still those technical papers. When products are launched yep. at AES, the technology was probably launched two or three years before that. And that's what I used to say when I was a tech there and going and sitting in all those paper presentations and all those tech programs. That was to know what to look for in the next generation of products yep. and be able to define it. AS still plays that role. They play the role yep. in standards. They created the, uh, I mean, you talk about an AS digital connection or AS EDU, which was uh, was co-developed at the same time by the uh, European Broadcasting Union and, and AS, but it is an AS standard. AS3 is a two-channel over an XLR connector. And if you plug something into an AS3 jack on one end and another piece of gear on the other end, and it works, that's because AES standards work. Well, before that, there was MADI, and mm -hmm. MADI is AES 10. Well, I guess not before that, because the numbers would have been sequential, but MADI is still a viable format today, and sure. that is an AES standard that was created, taking everybody just for polarity's sake to a pin too hot standard was an AES standard, because we would have gear from Tascam that was pin three hot. We'd have gear from Studer that's pin two hot. 
And you had to pay attention to all of that within your studio to make sure. sure that you were staying in absolute polarity on everything, compatible polarity on all of your devices and that you didn't invert it by going through some piece of device. So AS standards go on at the conventions and all throughout the year. The AS uh, research, supporting research, AS gathering people that are practitioners that are applying that research and the latest products with new technology and new applications. And that continues to go on. Uh, immersive is huge now. And audio for yep. AR, VR, XR, whatever are yeah. uh, Dolby yeah. Atmos and moving into the practical application of those standards and how those are going on. That's what really goes on at the convention and, and is hugely valuable, even if the exhibition hall and the trade show are the, the flash and dazzle of, of yeah. the event. Yeah, I think you're right. The, the people have forgotten about how important the real side of the AES convention is to the industry. Yeah. It's not about the, the exhibition or the trade show. It's about the convention and the gathering of uh, – of all these, you know, great minds in the industry and, and pushing out white papers and discussing future technology and, and yeah, and, and helping to come up with standards for, for the industry and, and help us yeah. all uh, figure out what's going on uh, with the future. That's the real importance, I think, of, of AES, obviously, like you've said, and, mm -hmm. and that's why we need more new members. We need, we need to keep pushing membership and getting some of the younger, smarter minds absolutely involved yeah. with audio, right? To join and jump in and and be a part of that research. That's right. This past convention this past convention in New York, something I noticed was the average age seemed to have dropped significantly at this particular uh, side of things. And, and you'll have to forgive me. I generally only see the exhibition side, uh, since I'm kind of tied to a yep. booth, I don't get to go to all of the great presentations. So, so that's something that I've totally missed out on throughout my career. So in the future, I'd like to, uh, you know, maybe rectify that a bit, but, uh, you know, in the exhibition floor, there was a much younger and brighter attitude. It mm -hmm. seemed like, um, which was very refreshing this year from the adoption of audio being not just music anymore, it's audio. It's audio for everything. Right. You know, there's all types of different mediums from, you know, you mentioned all of the R's, but then there was a great EDM stage. So different types of music are now being brought in, podcasting, streaming, all of all of these types of things. It's all audio. And it, it was really cool to see all of that. And then all of the students coming in as well, or young uh, professionals. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very refreshing to see that this year. And it seemed like it was just a change in the last 12 months. Yeah, it's been it's it's been heading that way for a while, and that that was very deliberate. When I was president, and um, that was about the time that Robbie was first on board, the convention exhibition had dwindled down a little bit, and mm -hmm. we had to start making this point. We had to make this case. At one point in time, AES could say, "Hey, we're having another one," and the mm -hmm. bookings for exhibition space would just flow in. Now yep. there's more competition and the internet and all of the other effects. So it has to be marketed and it has to be sold. And that's what Robbie could bring to the table and bringing, yep. bringing that client. We, we started to make sure that new constituencies were hearing about the AES and hearing about the convention. And Graham Kirk was brought on the following mm -hmm. year as sales manager and the first time that AES had a real dedicated individual to go out and talk to these manufacturers and make sure that they were going to have what they need and take care of them and make sure that they were hosted in. So bringing that professionalism in 
in sales and marketing, improving mm -hmm. customer support was a, a big thing. And that applies not only to the exhibition, but to membership as well. But putting that, that public facing forward, the AS, um, a, a priority of ours was customer service across the board and was to revitalize the convention by direct contact with the manufacturers and sponsors and exhibitors and by broadening the base of the outreach that we were doing and um, making actually for the exhibition floor, making a lot of free passes available, but making those available. Mm -hmm. And they, they were always, manufacturers were always able to pretty much give out as many passes as they wanted to, to the exhibition floor. Yeah. But there was no push and no marketing behind that. So uh, really digging deep down into these schools and such. Uh, if you're a student and you're not an AES member, you're, you're missing out on an amazing investment because uh, you, you get a great price as a student just to get started. Yes. AES is very friendly to students. It's a low rate. You get full access to the AES e-library, which has 17,000 plus papers yeah, and technology, both the research papers, applications, practical guides to application, standards access, and all of those kind of things. It's a great recess tool. For students, there's also a list of benefits of from exhibitors and manufacturers in general from throughout the industry that want to support new blood and fresh blood into the industry. So there's software giveaways and discounts and year trial versions of software and things that you can get as a student that add up to dozens of times the price of admission. Plus, yep. At the conventions, you've got four days of technical programs, which you can't even possibly go to them all. But in those four days, you can get the equivalent of a semester of schooling. Plus, there are all the mentoring things and ways that you can meet people and learn from professionals and interact with them and such. The AES has the Student Delegate Assembly, which is a shadow government of sorts of the students. The students really mm -hmm. run their own programs for all the competitions they do. But you can mm -hmm. bring in your recording and sit down in a recording critique session and have top engineers from around the world talk to you about your production and what you did mm -hmm. and ask you questions and make suggestions and such. And then there's competitions with great prizes and such, too, in, in various classes of recording and production, but also in equipment design, in either gear mm -hmm. or software design. There are, uh, there are design competitions and such. So that... All has come about. Some of the competitions and stuff were there, but we've, there's been more added to that. There's more for students. There's a definite push on the students. When I first started in AS leadership, the leadership was driven primarily by the academic side. And there's nothing wrong with that um, because those are the people right. that are doing the research and need the papers to publish and those kind of things. But if we accomplished anything in that 10 years since then, it is making sure that we pay attention to the commercial side as well. Um, right. We've analyzed the way that the shows are, are, are working. The technical program pays for itself. The exhibition pays for itself. But both are critical. And the membership revenue is critical to the existence of the society. And we yeah. needed to pay additional attention to making sure that that's just not that thing over there that's attached to our wonderful convention and our technical program, but give it give it weight and merit within uh, within the society as well. So that commercial mindset 
has been big. And then one of the latest movements within the AS has been for diversity and inclusion. And that's not just sure. it's not just gender based. It's not just racially based. It's not just national origin and language. It's all of those things. But it's also, as you said earlier, getting the hip hop crowd in this time and bringing mm-hmm. that back yeah. in a R&B portion of the, of the program as well. So looking at musical genres, looking at where people are working, recognizing that audio for video is the norm, not the exception. Yeah. These days, it's becoming yeah. the norm. So that partnership with NAB, where NAB New York is right next door to the Javits with 300 some odd primarily video exhibitors, and AES is right next door with 300 some odd primarily audio exhibitors. And when we first looked at that, there were only like 14 exhibitors that overlapped the two shows. So it worked out as a really good symbiosis that media production professionals, which is what they all are these days, could migrate freely between the two shows. And we could put 35,000 media professionals in the Javits Center rather than just 17,000 audio guys and and 17,000 video guys. Seems to me a, a good fit to have those together. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see um, someone that I knew from more of the broadcast podcast side of things walk through the AES show. And I kind of had to do a double take and ask him what he was doing there. And, uh, you know, he had the, the past that brought him into both. Mm-hmm. And and that it made me realize, wow, this is really a great fit for both NAB and AES, I feel. And the very first year we did it, the reports back from the exhibitors on the AES side was you see a lot of the same people at a lot of these shows. So their new leads were primarily from some, yep. some form of a majority, the majority of their new leads were from the NAB attendee side and not the AS side. Not that they didn't find the AS attendees valuable, but it opened up new doors and markets for them commercially, as well as just a, an interaction of, of ideas and concepts and bringing people in that can speak authoritatively on expanding the technology that uh, that we're all dealing with. Before um, we wrap up this, Frank, this has been incredible, by the way. Uh, th- I've learned quite a bit from you, and it's very interesting to learn all of this about your career. And it seems like you've had an amazing career that has spanned since the time mm-hmm. yeah, you were in the, the Air Force. Mm-hmm. You picked your career path as a radio technician. You went into radio, and then you helped build studios. You helped build publications. You helped build the Audio Engineering Society. What are you going to build next? <laughs> What's next for Frank? Oh, that's a good question. I'll build my retirement fund. No. Um, <laughs> we're working now with, with public relations and such as a kind of a different, they've all been different hats. I mean, you know, coming sure. as, a, as a geek tech guy, and saying, well, now I'm editing a magazine. And then, and then going yeah. from that is, you know, when you're editing a magazine, you're a journalist and the PR people, that's, that's the dark side. You know, they all sell out. But, but, it's, <laughs> but it's not. We're all working towards making it a better industry. And I've just been fortunate enough to fall between working. As transitions happen, I've been able to make transitions too. But it, it's still, I'll just continue looking for the whatever the next opportunity is, I don't have one targeted. Yeah. Working with what I do now, I bring my technology background to taking one of Robbie's focus, right? Press releases. And, uh, and he sends it <laughs> over to me because he says, I'm not sure that we 
know enough about this to do this. Why don't you do this? Yeah. Or something. It's just because <laughs> I, I, I've got a little bit of the, the, the geekier stuff in there and I can go through there and say, well, this is essential. This is essential. This is essential. That's not so much. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not that yep. your press That's releases great. are ever coming through a fluff, but you know, telling me <laughs> you've got to cut it down to 350 words for the daily. That's yeah. The there's show. definitely some, and there's something gotta, in there. You've got to find the core, you know? Yeah. As long as people read that fluff, I don't care. So <laughs> not just your future, but where do you see, you know, from someone who's has so much experience watching audio technology evolve over decades, you know, where do you see uh, it going? I mean, does, I mean, we're hoping that audio over IP is a big part of that, obviously at focus, right. But where, you know, what's your opinion? Where do you see the future of content creation? You know, the, the person sitting down making music, which you're very familiar with going back, you know, decades, where do you see that going and, and the delivery of that and the creation of that and, and how people might collaborate is, do you have any opinion on that? Do you well, have any insight? We've, we've morphed into the leading edge of, of a generation here already where physical media is all but dead. No yeah. one, uh, mm -hmm. no one buys CDs or DVDs. There's a, there's a, you know, there's enough out there to make it there. Vinyl's making a comeback, but it, it's it's as much as people love it, it is a euphonic medium. As I said earlier, yeah. analog recording is both a signal processing media as well as a storage media, and we happen to like the way that signal processing happens. We like the second harmonic distortion and such, despite it, but it's not convenient. It's not random access. It's not all of the things that MP3s and they're like AAC files and iTunes and all of that have all but um, destroyed that physical media market for for the large part. So it's going to be streaming. Internet's getting faster. 5G is coming along. 5G is going to change just tons of things. And it's not just one technology, but it's a marriage of a yeah. lot of technologies, as you guys know. That's true. But what 5G brings to the masses uh, most instantly recognizable is bandwidth. And bandwidth has been the downfall of, uh, of digital production across space and time. Now that you've got that bandwidth and you've got the collaboration tools that will allow you to do, I edited a Focusrite press release not that long ago where they were talking about using multiple sites in the UK to work on a live sure. production. Yeah. And yeah, that works. Contributors across AOIP coming from four different locations that were all contributing to a performance yeah. at once. And 5G is going to take that latency down another step and get us closer. We talked about the AT&T disk project. I think that really killed that was control latency controlling that box fast enough that all yeah. the moves and such felt real time. Sure. Working in that digital environment, clocking and such became a big thing that you guys were addressing like you did with this project and sharing a clock across those multiple sites. That's, yeah. that's going to transform the way people work. What I'm hoping to see is the, the golden age of recording, if you want to say <laughs> it that way, involve people interacting we've yeah. kind of gotten to a point now to where a lot of production is done one little piece at a time and it's mm -hmm. not people interacting and it's not that magic that happens when you get amazingly creative artists together and feeding off of one another 
right. and in accurate sure. real time. And it's now to the point that you can do that production. Like we're all looking at each other now on uh, three different panes on the screen where you can see that bass player from the guitar player. You can see your whole yep. band and you can work together and do it in a way that everyone is working in their own space because that's the demand of the production value today. Mm -hmm. The larger studios are the brick and mortar studios, the tracking room, which we, we didn't talk about. We built that at Masterphonics as a $3 million plus standalone wow. amazing tracking facility wow. in Nashville. And it's going to be bulldozed for condos next month. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that's a shame. Just Painful. breaks my heart to see that was a better part of my life was build, <laughs> building yeah. this place that had you know a 70 foot main floor and you could, you could do orchestras and such in there and a hundred foot of isos with a completely stone room yeah that was amazing reverb chamber and special effects mm -hmm. space and all of these wonderful amazing acoustic spaces but those are getting scarce as real estate yeah. uh, new york's down to just a handful of large yeah. tracking spaces nashville is losing more and more and la still has la too but yeah. a lot of them are gone yeah no a lot of them are gone yeah. uh, london i think the same thing yep, you know yep yeah. it's, it's the same it's the same all over so as we lose these big tracking spaces if we can find a way to put that magic back in the music making through technology yeah and, exactly and yep. audio over internet protocol is the obvious uh is the obvious path that that's going to happen and it seems that the embrace of streaming now is pretty locked in and people are looking to stream everything and ownership is down so there's a bit more money though back in the system from that the streaming services maybe still are not giving the the artists and the content creators and the intellectual property holders as opposed to the other form of ip enough of a cut of the pie at this yeah. point for it to be as productive as we'd like. But hopefully this demand for streaming and this demand for these services to differentiate are going to move towards a quality base because with the 5G type of thing, no longer are you limited to a MP3. Now, a, a high-resolution MP3, most people may not be able to tell it from a CD, but the average mm -hmm. MP3 that people are listening to now is you know you throw away a lot of information yeah when you yeah. go to get those bits fast enough to stream over over a telephone connection on a phone so hopefully we're going to raise the bar on quality we're going to increase the interaction and maybe that's not a prediction but it's a the technology is going to be there to make this happen and gosh i sure hope it does and yeah you know from the audio engineering side perspective that they will be talking a lot about the way these new paradigms will allow people to raise the bar on quality as we move forward into uh, full application of those technologies. Yeah, that's great. That's cool. Great synopsis. Yeah, I think you know, and that's our our uh, when we're designing these some of these new products, especially with audio over IP in mind, we are just thinking about how do we get people back together, you know, right. um, creating together, and and uh, you don't necessarily need uh, everybody in the same room together anymore. You can do some of these remote recordings and bring them together and uh, clocked properly. And, uh, and then, you know, expand on collaboration and collaborate in ways, you know, across the country that you haven't been able to do in real time that you hadn't been able to do in the past. So it's, um, it, it, it is kind of exciting to see where this is going to go and, 
mm-hmm. and how we're all going to going to enjoy it, you know. And and not only does it allow that collaboration to happen again that that we've lost, but it allows collaboration between anybody anywhere. Yeah, true, true. And yeah, it yeah. opens new possibilities yep. and paradigms. Yeah. It's a very exciting time we're coming into. Frank, is there anything that we've missed? Anything else that you'd like to touch on before we uh, wrap up today? Oh, you probably heard enough. All right. Well, Mr. Frank Wells, we appreciate your time here on the Focus Right Pro podcast. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing you again in person. Thank you very much for your time today. And uh, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Quite welcome. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Focus Right Pro podcast. This mostly bi-monthly podcast is produced and hosted by me, Dan Hughley, for Focusrite. Music is by Merlin. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Join our conversation on social media at Focusrite Pro. For more information, please visit our website at www.pro.focusrite.com. towards making it a better industry. And I've just been fortunate enough to fall between working as transitions happen. I've been able to make transitions too, uh, but it's still, I'll just continue looking for this, whatever the next opportunity 